0: Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Well, as Brandon also mentioned, we we are grateful for eight days of hope being he- here in town again. Over a thousand volunteers have come into the community to to help. For many of us, we've moved on, uh, but. Friday night, I was with the family in our small group, and we were celebrating as their house is largely finished down in Dickinson, and uh, we know there's still a lot going on, and some of us have moved on, some of us are still in the middle of it, and uh, so we're grateful for Eight Days of Hope doing that and uh, the the gifts that you've given for that, and we want to also just remind you, keep in prayer all those folks down in Florida and Georgia where the latest... A devastating storm hit. We know, we know something of what some of that's about, and uh, we don't want to take that lightly. Well, we're, we're wrapping up our series today, Relentless, looking at the life of, of Jonah. And as I've been l- looking at Jonah, I realized that he reminds me of someone. Now, I, maybe you've had that experience, maybe you haven't, that feeling, you know, you meet somebody or you read about somebody, and you feel like you know them, or there's something about them that kind of clicks. And As I thought about it and did some reading, it struck me that Jonah reminds me of the older brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. It just kind of jumped out at me. In Luke 15, many of us know this story. Jesus tells it of a man who had two sons, and the younger son asks for his share of the inheritance. and In doing that, he was essentially saying, Father, Dad... You're no longer alive to me. I don't care about you. And he goes on about his life. He heads out to a distant land. He wastes his money, soon realizes that he actually had it pretty good back home. And so he heads back, heads back humbled, heads back repentant, heads back hoping that his father will hire him just to be a servant. But Jesus says the father was watching for his son, and when he saw him coming, He ran out to meet him and welcomed him back into the family and threw a big party for him. And it would seem like that was the perfect place to end the story. But then Jesus tells us that the older brother is angry, angry that his father has allowed this younger son back and thrown a party for him. And the father assures the older son of his love for him and that he's going to inherit all that the father owns. And then the father explains why they're celebrating. He says, we had to celebrate this happy day. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And then Jesus ends the story. And I don't know about you, but I've always wondered, did the older son ever come around? You know? What was his thought? What, 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 you know, I can understand his anger, you know, because... He had been the faithful one, obeying his dad all these years. Never acted like his father was dead to him, and he, he just went about his responsibilities. I kind of think that's the way it it, you, it often is with the oldest child, isn't it? How, how many of you I am, how many of you are the oldest child in here? Are, are we kind of the responsible ones? Yeah, I see some nodding heads. And 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 birth orders tell us that that is, in fact, typically true. We are the responsible ones. We tend to obey the rules. And it really gets under our skin when those younger siblings get away with stuff. You know? It's like, how? It's not fair. And so we, we, we may understand this older son and wonder if, if, we're on, if we're honest and standing where the older son is, if old, dear old dad hasn't gone too far except Jesus is telling this parable, and, and it's a picture of just how loving and merciful God, our heavenly Father, is even when it's not deserved. In like fact, many of us who, who are parents have discovered how, just how true this is because there's nothing we want more than to restore any of our children when they've done something wrong. We don't take delight in that. We don't love that, that they've done something wrong and we caught them in it or whatever. You know, and We look at our kids so closely. Now, admittedly, I may look at you and wonder how you can restore your wayward child. But when it comes to my child, it's a whole different story, right? That's my child. Now, granted, the analogy isn't perfect, and if we're honest, we probably all found ourselves acting like both of the sons at one time or another. Both of them acted in unloving ways toward their father and toward their brother. And yet the father loves them both and seeks both of them out, running to meet the younger son when he returns, turns and returns home, and going out from the party to try to get the older son to come in and join in. Both sons sinned in different ways, and yet the father loved each of them. And it strikes me that that is so much like what is happening here in Jonah. Jonah reminds me of the older son, while the Ninevites are sort of like the younger son. The older son is kind of self-righteous because he thinks he's so much better than his wayward son. He's he's stayed home. He's been the good one. But his very attitude reveals how tainted his heart is. The younger son also sins in his actions toward his father and his life in the far country. And and we know if the Ninevites had continued with their sinful ways, God warned through Jonah that they were going to suffer consequences. They were going to be destroyed. But the younger son repents. And when we read Jonah, it says the Ninevites repent. And God was just watching for them to do that, ready to to run out and meet them where they were. It tells us at the end of chapter 3, when God saw that the Ninevites did what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, that kind of attitude's great for the younger son, great for Nineveh, not so much for the way the older son and, and Jonah were feeling, because neither of them were happy about it. In, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah, prophet of the Lord God, was convinced the only thing these Assyrians deserved was destruction. They were, they were a very powerful enemy of the Jews. And now here they are repenting. We don't know to how, what degree, but, but it, enough of a degree that God relented of destroying them. And so verse 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah said he he fled to Tarshish in the beginning because he understood the character of God, that God really did care for these Assyrians. And given a chance and a warning and they repented, God would be gracious. God would be merciful and he didn't like that. In fact, Jonah's language reflects the words of God himself who had told Moses this was his very nature on Mount Sinai as Moses received the two tablets of stone engraved with the Ten Commandments for the second time, time. And, and this truth would be affirmed several other times throughout the Old Testament. In Exodus 34, God's God passed before, it says, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, this, in this particular passage, verse 7, this steadfast love phrase is the Hebrew word kased. And, and this divine attribute of God is, is actually a very very deep, very complex term such that translators have, have really kind of struggled to capture its, the full nuance of it. And so if you look at different translations, you will see phrases like faithful love, steadfast love, kindness, loving kindness, and, and just the word love. All of these ideas are combined and, and really kind of bound together to help, help explain the word. Uh, A man named Bruckner proposes that the best translation of the term is the unrelenting love of God. And the nearest New Testament equivalent is the Greek word agape, which is translated unconditional love. That God has this this relentless, unconditional love for his creations. And, And though this doesn't mean he won't also be just... It does mean his desire is to be merciful, if at all possible. And Jonah knew this. He knew this was what God would want to do if the people of Nineveh responded. And he just didn't want to be a part of that. He didn't like it. He wanted to be angry, he wanted to be mad, he wanted them to get what's coming to him. It was one thing for God to be merciful to Jonah and his people, but for God to be merciful to others was just too much for him. And so he says he fled. In other words, it's one thing to be merciful and gracious to people like us who are part of our tribe, who are part of our network, part of our inner circle, But we may not like the idea of showing mercy and sharing the good news of Christ with people who aren't in that inner circle, who maybe we only see occasionally at work or or at school or every once in a while around the neighborhood or even just a a random encounter with people that we've never met before where God opens a door for us to share our story of faith. We may very well default to the, to the attitude of the older son who didn't feel it was right for his father to be gracious to his brother. And in the meantime, he, he, simply, he, he basically overlooked all the thousand little ways his father had been gracious to him over the years. How quickly any of us can forget. Of course, as we've seen, Jonah didn't get very far, trying to run, and after the storm got him thrown into the sea, swallowed by the big fish. He was vomited onto land and reluctantly obeyed God and, and, and had gone to Nineveh and proclaimed his message. And as we saw last week, the people of Nineveh responded. And, and, and Jonah, Jonah didn't like it, and he said to God, verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Now that's the English Standard Translation. The New International Version translations puts the Lord's question this way. Have you any right to be angry? Do you really have the right in this situation? See, Jonah wants God to be merciful as long as it's what Jonah wants, as long as it benefits him and his people. But when God is consistently gracious and merciful, extending his love even to those Jonah doesn't like or or who once struck down by God's wrath, Jonah gets upset and wishes God would just end his life instead. And the older brother wants God to turn his back on the returning son and kick him off the family land. Let him manage on his own. He did it to himself. And if we're honest, many of us also struggle with being gracious and merciful to those who maybe aren't in our circle or to those who, in fact, have even hurt us. It may be as little as apathy or indecision or fear of what others might think or even anger, or hatred, or bitterness, maybe that keeps us from being faithful to God and His plan. See, Jonah couldn't stand the idea of God being truly merciful. And when he found himself still alive, he still hoped that God would destroy Nineveh. Verse 5, it says, He went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. I mean, I can almost hear him sitting there and say, come on, fire and brimstone. You, you, you did it to Sodom and Gomorrah. You can do it again, God. Come on, rain down on these people. They don't deserve it. They, were, they just said it. Destroy them. And he's sitting there and he's stewing in this little booth. And apparently it wasn't shading him very well. And so Scripture tells us God acted because God had a a plan. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. In a merciful and gracious act, in one day, God raised up this plant to give Jonah more shade, and Jonah was so glad about it. I mean, we're always glad. We're always grateful when God gives us more than we deserve, when he gives us grace. In fact, sometimes we take it for granted and so that when we don't get even or, or, or even lose what we had or, or thought we deserved, we feel like we've been cheated. It was grace in the first place, but if it's been taken away from us, God's done us wrong. And so the next day, verse 7, it says, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Now, remember, Jonah didn't have to sit out there to the east of Nineveh. He could have believed God. He could have started home. Why is he there? There's only one reason he's there. It's because he is hoping God will do what he wants. And and, and what he's doing is he's just questioning God and his purposes, and God lets Jonah feel in a very concrete, physical way just how good God's mercy really is, because he miraculously gave him shade one day, but the next day, just as quickly, he takes the shade away and allows the sun to really do its work. In fact, verse 8 says, When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked again that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. See, Jonah discovers, really kind of the hard way, perhaps without even realizing it, just how much he likes God's mercy for himself. It's really a good thing, and and, and it's easy to overlook. It's easy for us to overlook until it's taken away, as Jonah experienced. It says in verse 9 then, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? In other words, do you have any right to be angry about the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you didn't labor nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Really here for the first time we see under questioning from God that Jonah admits he's angry. In fact, he's so angry, he wants to die. But his anger isn't for the plant, a plant he didn't create, which which sprung up miraculously and just as quickly died off through God's working through a worm. His anger is because his only concern is for himself, and he didn't get what he wanted. Now let that just sit there for a minute. He's angry because he didn't get what he wanted. And the older son is angry, more concerned about having to work hard, getting no party, and seeing his father being gracious to his brother than for his brother who was dead and has come back to life. He was lost but now is found. I mean, how often do we have more passion for the food we eat? More passion for the team we're pulling for? More passion for the money we make? More passion for the home we live in than we do for the least, the last, and the lost? For the people God sent Jesus to die for, including every one of us. Any of us can presume on God's grace and think we've earned it. We deserve everything we got. When we really don't understand just how dependent we are on God and His grace every day, every cotton-picking day, Is any of us owed family or friends or a job or health or breath or even life? James Fowler, while doing some research on faith development, interviewed a remarkable 12-year-old boy who'd come to put his faith in Jesus Christ in spite of growing up and living in a strongly atheistic family. Fowler asked him what difference he thought it would make in the world if the God he believed in didn't exist. How would the world be different? And and the boy thought about it for a few moments, and then he answered, and and this is what this 12-year-old boy said. He said, we can use the example of my aquarium. My aquarium is meant to be a perfectly balanced ecological system. The fish eat the plants and live on the oxygen the plants give off. The plants live on the waste from the fish and the carbon dioxide they put into the water. There are snails in the tank to keep the sides clean, and they live off the algae and the fish waste. So it is supposed to be a self-contained cycle, not requiring me to do anything. My aquarium is not perfect. Lots of times I have to do something to restore the balance. If I didn't, my fish would die. And then Fowler said, This 12-year-old boy looked straight at him and said, and we will never know how much God does every day to keep our world working as well as it does. We will never know how much grace we've received, how good God has been to us, how much he's helped us, through a hard time or a tragedy? Do we realize how relentlessly He has pursued each one of us? He has provided His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, to give us eternity. When God created back in Genesis, He set into motion a fundamental truth that all of life is a gift of a god Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And his love that we certainly didn't deserve, his grace that we can never earn, invites us to love those around us and act for their good. In 1 John it says, chapter 4, verse 19, we love because God first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, Must also love his brother. God's relentless love invites you and me, compels you and me, to love those around us. In fact, to go so far as to even love our enemies, because we were God's enemies before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. It's all mercy. It's all grace. And anything we withhold from another at any time is just really kind of an indicator of how far our hearts still have to go. And it's interesting to me that the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to Jonah, nor does it tell us what happened to the older brother. It tells us our free will and our self-seeking sinful nature can still reject God's will and love for us and never seek out the least, the last, and the lost. We can do that. It's not hard. In fact, that's often almost more like the default for us. Former missionary and seminary president J. Robertson McGwilkin writes this. A world, no matter how lost, will not move me into action while I am mired in self-love. On the other hand, once I am free to make choices on the basis of compassion for others, the need of lost men and women does indeed become compelling. And what more compelling need is there than billions of people who today face a Christless eternity? the terrifying lostness that envelops most in this world, pressing them with an inexorable acceleration toward the blackness of hell. If this does not move us to action, what will? Now bear in mind, if this can be a struggle for a mighty prophet of God, it can certainly be a struggle for each one of us. And yet, each day, God is sending you and me into our own Ninevehs at school, at work, in our neighborhood, in our clubs, in our sports activities, in all those places to witness to God's love, grace, and mercy, as well, sometimes, to warn that there are consequences in all our lives if we live outside of God's will. So here's my question for us this morning. Who is God calling you to go out to seek, to befriend, to walk alongside, to love? Who is it that lives in Nineveh? Who is it that's gone to the far country and squandered what they had? And do they deserve it? No. But do I deserve it? Equally, no. And so when it's in my power and my privilege to give, shouldn't I? Shouldn't we? There's a world dying around you and me. There's a world going nuts. There's a world that thinks it's got all the answers. And it's living in Nineveh and it's living in the far country. And sometimes I I hope and I fear that I may be more like the big brother or Jonah like the God who has called me and you and all of us to follow Him to be people of mercy and grace if you'd like to talk to somebody about any of this this morning our prayer team will be down here and they'd love to pray with you, pray over you, pray for you pray with you on behalf of somebody else If you're a guest with us today, again, as as I said earlier, I, I, myself, and some friends will be out this door, and we'd love to welcome you this morning, and, and as mentioned, we have a little gift for you. We have a great opportunity to be in prayer for Eight Days of Hope this week to help our neighbors to pray for those in Florida and on the East Coast who've suffered and to look around us and see who else we can minister to. Join me in prayer. Gracious God, you have surrounded me with Nineveh's and younger brothers who have clearly gone off the rail at some point, and yet it's so easy for me to look at myself and think how good I've done with my resentment toward them, with my feeling that they're getting what they deserve, that maybe my heart is even worse. Forgive me, Lord. Help me to repent, turn to you, and turn for you to those who are in Nineveh. I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you. Go check out Nineveh. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.